Well, as we continue in worship by approaching God's Word to hear His Word for us this morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're only looking at two verses. If you're using a Black Pew Bible, you can find it in the bottom right corner of 810, page 810. But as I said earlier this morning, we're turning our attention to our first utterance of Jesus from the cross. Probably not chronologically his first utterance, but it's the first utterance from the cross, his first word from the cross. I think it's necessary to start here. I think it's the word that we have to wrestle with first if we're going to try and wrestle with who Jesus is, what he accomplished on the cross. If we're going to come face to face with the darkness of the cross in order to celebrate the life-giving gift of Jesus, I think we need to start with this utterance. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 say, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. I mean, even before we get even any further than that, there it is, the darkness of the cross. It was actually a literal physical darkness that descended upon the land. The physical world reflecting the reality of what was taking place here. Now, up to this point, right, Jesus has, he's been arrested, wrongly accused. He's been sentenced to be crucified. He's been flogged brutally, his flesh torn, blood running down his back. They stripped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They beat him. They spit on him. And then they led him away and nailed him to a cross. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. They put a sign over his head that said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And as he hung there on the cross, the physical world began to groan with the injustice of what was taking place. The skies began to darken as all of the darkness in the world, the human condition of sin, all of the selfishness, all of the greed, all of the abuse, all of the misdeeds, the rebellion, and the evil, so prevalent, it gathered around him. It was placed on him. And from noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is our first word for this morning. When we want to be confronted with the darkness of the cross, the first word we encounter is forsaken. Forsaken. What does it mean to be forsaken? It's what Jesus felt. It's what He cried out in anguish from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the words, that phrase, actually comes right out of Psalm 22. A prophetic psalm, if there ever was one. Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross, crucified. And in Psalm 22, the psalmist wrote, they pierce my hands and feet. The soldiers divided up his clothes and cast lots for one of the pieces that was seamless. And the psalmist had written, they divide my clothes and cast lots among them. The the chief priests and teachers of the law, Matthew records them mocking him on the cross, or maybe it was John. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, they mocked. And the psalmist had written, 
that those who mocked him said, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And then he cries out in a loud voice with the opening lines of Psalm 22, invoking the entire psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. Jesus felt the separation. He felt alienation from the Father. Do you, do you know that feeling? Do you know what it is to be forsaken? I'm not even talking about you being abandoned necessarily or you being discarded. I'm talking about have you offended someone so badly, hurt someone so much that it broke the entire relationship and the only word that's left to describe you two is that of forsakenness. Like a desert wasteland. What was once close, even intimate, becomes nothing more than a memory that because of what you've done, they've had no choice but to walk away. And you feel forsaken. From a faith standpoint, the same question exists, right? Have you, are you aware of the extent to which we have offended God? That we've offended Him so badly, that we've hurt Him so much that the entire relationship is broken. May, I mean, maybe you've never felt particularly close to God in the first place, or maybe you once did long ago, but I don't know, life has a way of falling back into old habits, doesn't it? You cry out to the heavens, you cry out to God, but there's no answer, there's no response because there's this insurmountable distance there. All because of the ways we have offended God, because of, because of sin. Here is the first thing we need to be aware of when we approach this saying of Jesus. Without the cross, we are forsaken. If there is no cross, if what Christ did there was not effective, then we are forsaken. And we are forsaken because, because of sin. Now, warning, warning, church word alert. Sin. Ugh. What is that? I think it's important to actually think about how we think about sin, how meta of us. How we think about sin matters. And the Bible has a number of different ways of doing it. And we, sometimes we tend to pick on one of them. We li I like this. Sounds weird. I like this understanding of sin. And so we gravitate to one and neglect all the other metaphors and all the other ways of describing sin. Like, for example, one of the ways the Bible talks about sin is missing the mark. Right? This idea we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, we were almost there. And we just missed his glory. Like, we were so close. Like the archery term, like you still hit the target, you're just not the bullseye. That doesn't make sin sound so bad, honestly. I can gravitate to that. Another uh, way the Bible frames sin is breaking a rule. Some of us are quite good at this. You know, James talks about if you show favoritism instead of loving your neighbor, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, rule breakers. But you know, some rules seem pretty arbitrary, don't they? You ever driven through Nebraska? They have speed limits. <laughs> that feels arbitrary to me. It's 450 miles in a straight line. Or in Montreal, they have, they, it's illegal on the island of Montreal to turn right on a red light. But there's nobody there. Really, is that law really? You know, we can kind of feel that the Bible's that way too. Like, eh, 
who's this really going to hurt? These laws seem, maybe you like thinking about sin that way. It's not really a big deal. Another way the Bible talks about sin is by doing something bad or, or maybe failing to do something good. Colossians, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So now we're moving into not abstract rules or just missing the mark. Now we're talking about morality, good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. And that that starts to get a little more tricky until you start saying, well, what really, what is good? What is evil? Are these not just relativistic constructs that we, you know, whatever is good for me is not necessarily the same thing that's good for you. And we forget that Good is only defined by that which delights God and is in accordance with his character and purposes. And evil is just anything that does not delight God and is not in accordance. Like the only framework for good and evil is to know the personal God of the universe. Or maybe another way of thinking about sin is that it's all about choosing me first. Saying I'm the most important. Romans, but those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. This idea that says when you put yourself over everyone else and sometimes even over God. See, I don't need you, God. I don't want you, God. I am and there is none besides me. And you can look at all of these and be like, any one of them, you're like, yeah, it's not so bad. But when you put them all together, you're like, oh, this is a bad situation. But what it comes down to at its root, and I think this is where it it, it really is necessary to understand this before we even go any further in what Jesus cried out from the cross, is that the, the net effect or the actual consequence of sin is not, oh no, there's a broken rule. <gasps> oh no, I, I missed the target a little bit. Oh no, I did something bad. No, the actual consequence of sin is that you're rejecting God himself and his ways, his purposes, and his beauty, and his love. In John 3, whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the essence of sin, the consequence, the result, the reason sin is so devastating. It's not just a rule's been broken or a code has been violated or because we've been a little bit selfish. It's because we broke our whole relationship with God. Sin should not be uh, relegated to a merely legal construct. It's not just like an accounting error that needs to be rectified. Sin is relational. Sin is a personal God who created you and loves you and wants you to know Him and you saying, thanks but no thanks, I'm good, I want nothing to do with you, Lord, and you spit in His face, turn your back on Him and walk the other direction. The end game for humanity, if there is no cross, is to be forsaken. It's to be separated from the giver and sustainer of life. And when you're separated from the giver of life, what's left? Nothing but death. Separation from God. Forsaken forever. This is the bad news. And when we talk about our faith with other people, we don't tend to lead with this, do we? Hey, let me tell you a story. 
we're all sinners and going to hell. Like, that, that's just not compelling, not necessarily inviting. But at some point, it does have to come up because it's true. Sin is a thing. It needs to be dealt with. It results in the separation from God that is the truest experience of what it means to be forsaken. If you think you felt forsaken from a human standpoint, try being completely separated from the God of the universe for all eternity. That is what it means to be forsaken. That's the bad news. And if there is no cross, then that is our fate. We are forsaken. This is the darkness. This is the darkness that covered the land from noon until about the third hour. You can't soften this. You can't sand this down to make it more palatable. You can't ignore it. You can't sidestep it. This is what it means to be forsaken. But, But Jesus took all of that forsaken and put it on himself. Jesus took all of our forsaken, all of that alienation, all of that separation, he took all of it upon himself. Right? If we go back to the text, that's why he's crying out at the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening in this moment? Now, I would love to say I'm about to explain this to you. What's happening in this moment? There have been volumes, entire oceans of ink that have been written of what might be happening in this situation where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am not going to solve it this morning. But it's not a bad idea to present some of what has been thought. Not exhaustively, but some actually think that God forsook, is that the past tense of forsaken? Forsakened? Wow, that seems awkward. That God actually was separated from Jesus, like the Trinity broke. That Jesus experienced that kind of forsakenness. I don't know if I can go all the way there. I don't know about break, broken Trinities. That seems hard. Another angle is that Jesus, in quoting the psalm, is actually intentionally invoking the human condition with which he is identifying right for generations people have cried out to god why are you not here why how long oh lord how long why have you forsaken me and as jesus takes all of the sin and rebellion upon himself on the cross he he calls out to humanity saying this is why i'm doing this it's for you vicariously identifying with all of humanity my god my god the, the chorus of all humanity that pleads with God, why have you forsaken me? Some actually think it's victorious. It's victory. By invoking the first line of the psalm, he invokes the whole psalm, and you know how it ends. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he's listened to his cry for help. The very last verse of the psalm says, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. I like that one. But we don't actually know what's going on here, right? All we have is Jesus crying out on a cross, quoting a psalm. Here's what we know. It was an experience of terrible agony. 
It was an experience of some kind of alienation and forsakenness from the Father as He identified, as He carried the sin of the world, and even maybe as He declared, maybe it's all of them all at once. All we have are His words. So perhaps the best way for us to approach it is simply to embrace a certain measure of mystery. He was taking the forsakenness upon Himself. So we sing songs like in Christ alone, which says, the Father turned His face away. And we can sing those words because even in the song it speaks in metaphor, right? We don't know what's happening here, but we know conceptually the forsakenness that was upon us was upon Him. And He experienced an agony and a forsakenness that was unbearable. And as you even heard this morning being read from the, the Lenten Scripture as the candle was lit, this was always God's plan. And we need to be sure we, we grasp this. This is never some sort of sick sort of infanticide on God's part, like a, He's going to kill His own son so that we don't die. No, this was Jesus willingly accepting for Himself the penalty for our sin. Jesus taking our forsakenness upon Himself. God put these words in the mouth of Isaiah the prophet where the reader stopped. The very next line says, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. That's our forsakenness upon Him. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted because of our forsakenness on Him. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities because our forsakenness was upon Him. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. He bore it for us. Jesus took everything that it means to be forsaken by God and He put it on His own shoulders when He went to the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if there is no cross, we are forsaken. Jesus took all of that forsaken upon Himself. And because He did, and here's the kicker, we will never be forsaken again. Right? We, we have to move past this legal conceptualization of sin and it, it's not wrong, it's just partial. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, got it. We should be grateful beyond words, but He did more than just pay off our debts. In paying that penalty, He welcomed us back to our God. He didn't just pay the penalty for sin, He dealt with the consequences of sin. He dealt with our forsakenness before God. He took our forsakenness upon Himself, and because He did, we get our God back. And we get to be with Him forever. Not just an Old Testament promise. A New Testament reality. The author of Hebrews reminds us that God has said, Oh, apparently, we're just going to remind ourselves, by His wounds we're healed. Yeah, we got that. Okay. God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. That's not an Old Testament promise. That's been reiterated, recaptured, reclaimed, and reproclaimed in this new era that we're living in in light of Christ. And if we can never again be forsaken because Jesus has taken all that forsakenness upon Himself, then <laughs> I'm not gonna, what is there to be afraid of? What can mere mortals do 
when I get eternity with my God. Or maybe take Jesus' own words at the end of the Great Commission where he concludes with, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to see that progression that when we are confronted with the darkness of the cross, when we should be confronted with the darkness of the cross, we need to be confronted with the darkness of the cross. And it starts by realizing that without the cross, we are forsaken. But when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We realize Jesus took all of that forsaken upon himself. And because he did, you and I will never be forsaken again. So where does that leave us? Well, we'd better not forsake him. I have this image in my mind of inheriting $10 million. I think about this often. <laughs> but imagine someone inheriting $10 million that goes direct deposit to the bank and never taking any of it out and actually starting to go hungry, losing their home, living in the streets, starting to waste away when they have access to all of the riches they would need to live a whole and flourishing life. And they're just not taking advantage of it and they waste away. In Christ, all of our forsaken has been taken away. Our debt has been paid. But what we get is we get our God back. We have the full riches of life with God. And so often we just stop with thanks for paying the debt. And we forget about this whole life with God that has been opened up to us, renewed with us. We get stuck thinking about it in religious terms instead of relationship terms. We think about it as what we're saved from instead of what we're saved into. We think of it as fire insurance instead of delight and paradise. Not as some abstracted location, but because we're actually with our God. And we can enjoy Him and His presence. What is the opposite of forsaken? It's presence. And Jesus has promised His presence. That's what we get. And it's not even pie in the sky when we die kind of presence. It's like right now kind of presence. And the Lord Jesus, who took all of our forsakenness upon him, who took all of our sin upon him, is saying, don't miss out. Don't get so busy in life that you don't actually take the time to enjoy the presence of the living Christ with you. Don't forsake him now that he's taken all of your forsakenness upon himself. I know there are times when it feels like we're distant from God. I get it. I've been there. I'm often there. And I know there are times where we actually screw up, where we turn away from the Lord and we fail. And there are times when our sin continues to drive a wedge in our relationship with God. Even though our sins have been accounted for, our sins have been paid for, but we still make choices that hurt our relationship with God and, and distance comes in there. But because of Jesus, God has dealt with those consequences, the effects of our sin once and for all. Even when we feel like we should be forsaken, we're not and we will never be because of what christ has done hanging on a cross crying out my god my god why have you forsaken me 
The season of Lent is a time to remember the cross. It's not a symbol that can be allowed to be emptied of its meaning. We cannot let it become normal. It should be a catalyst, like in the truest chemistry sense of the word, right? Something that facilitates this, this reaction in us without ever being consumed or running out. It should be something that draws us back to God. Let's, let's let the symbol do its job. That without the cross, we would be forsaken. But at the cross, Jesus took all of our forsakenness upon Himself. And because He did, you and I will never be forsaken. So we have 36 days of Lent left. Give or take the math and how Sundays are excluded. and It's complicated. 36 days is enough time for God to change your life. 36 days is enough time to establish a new practice. Maybe even if you just decide today to start it. If you maintain that through to Easter, that's going to change your life. We talk about, you know, Lent and we want to fast from something good and take up something even better. So let's say you give up coffee. Let's just hypothetically say that. Sorry, Thursday morning. It's not actually about giving up the coffee, right? It's about taking those five minutes each morning that you would normally just sit down and sip your coffee. Maybe lamenting the loss of that warm cup of liquid deliciousness. But instead, spending that time, maybe opening your Bible and digging deep into God's Word. Maybe giving up Facebook for Lent is a thing. Have you seen how many posts people are posting? I'm giving up social media for Lent. Yeah, right. (laughs) But if you do give up something like Facebook for Lent, do you know how many hours you get back in your day? (laughs) And what if you made a trade? Facebook for Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's a winning trade. I'm pretty sure you come out on top of that. That would literally give you hours to explore new ways of enjoying the Lord's presence with you. Go for a walk, gather with friends, start a small group, figure out, here's what I want you to do. Here is the challenge. In light of who Jesus is, in light of his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to embrace the fact that we will never be forsaken. Don't miss out on it. Instead, this Lent, pick something doable. Pick some aspect of your life that you can invite Jesus into very intentionally. Whether it's an extra 10 minutes in the morning, whether it's meeting with a group of people through the season of Lent to talk about Jesus. Make some kind of commitment, some kind of decision. Say, this Lent, Jesus, you and me. Let's spend this time together. Let's focus on the opposite of forsaken and enjoy presence. And when you figured out what that commitment is, tell somebody. Tell somebody so they can slap you around when you don't do it. Share it with your small group. Share it with someone who's discipling you. Share it with someone you're discipling. How will the season of Lent be different as you lean into this, the first word of Jesus' last words from the cross? I guess that's the invitation, right? Lean in to this word from Jesus. Wrestle with this word from Jesus. Without the cross, we would be forsaken. Jesus took our forsaken upon himself. And you and I will never be forsaken again. Enjoy 
the presence of the living Christ with you this Lenten season. Always and ever be grateful that he endured our forsakenness so that we will never be forsaken. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is hard for us to grapple, to wrestle with, with the cross, much less what you were crying out as you were being crucified. That just seems so surreal. And, and it's not just an exercise in being morbid that we try and draw attention to this and we try and we really genuinely want the cross to regain its shock value in our lives. Not, not because of how horrific it was, although it was horrific. because of how beautiful it is. Because how beautiful that which was accomplished there is. We acknowledge that you are alive, that you are here, that you are present, and that you offer your presence to us, that we can actually experience you and know you and be loved by you. So for this Lenten season, Jesus, I, I pray that you would turn your presence up to 11 for us. You know, if we're having a hard time tuning in, if we're having a hard time hearing it, if the melody is too faint, turn up the volume that we might hear it, that we might perceive you more easily. Condescend to us in that way. We need you. We need you to find our, our truest sense of hope and fulfillment and meaning and delight So we invite you, we ask you, we plead with you. We cry out to the heavens, make yourself known to us that we might enjoy your presence which you purchased at the cross by taking all of our forsakenness upon yourself. We need you and we love you in your name. Amen.